This is the Redis Stars podcast, where we talk with community members about what's new and what they're doing with Redis. Dave Nielsen, Head of Community and Ecosystem Programs at Redis Labs, and this is the Redis Stars podcast, where we talk with community members about what's new and what they're doing with Redis. This week, we have Chris Richardson, the creator of microservices.io, author of Microservices Patterns, and also the new online bootcamp, Distributed Data Patterns for Microservices, and also the founder of Eventuate. If you want to find out more about all those things, because that's a lot, go to microservices.io and specifically for the bootcamp, look on the right-hand side. There's a little sign-up form there for you. So uh, welcome, Chris, and thank you for joining us here at the end of May 2020, the year of the coronavirus. How are you holding up? Oh, you know, I'm doing okay. It's quite interesting. I've gone from traveling between 30 and 50% of my time around the world to basically being in my house and walking around my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, you of all people, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I don't even know where else, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, all those, I guess. But to see your photos of exotic meals you're having in, you know, restaurants around the world and photos of, you know, exotic sports or whatever you're watching, maybe not exotic, but, you know, the Australian Open or something. And now... Man, that's a big change for you. Yes, yeah. But you know, I, it's funny, right? I mean, I live in the Oakland Hills and I just realized it's so beautiful up here, right? And, you know, I'll go for a walk at sunrise and I'll go for a walk at sunset and just get have the opportunity to take the most amazing photos, really, you know, so which actually end up on Instagram. Oh, and then, yeah. yeah, I do a lot of home cooking. <laughs> There's just a lot of getting back to uh, the basics, I guess, huh? Yes. Yeah, me too. Me too. I don't know if it's me or not, but I feel like the birds in our neighborhood have gotten more adventurous or loud. I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but I think they're kind of filling in the gap where we used to be. And even the crows are starting to have like battles <laughs> with other crow groups, I guess. Or maybe I just didn't notice it in the past. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I just have a sense there's more wildlife and it just feels that yeah as you say that it's like i don't know the birds and the bees are more lively in the backyard than they have been normally so be curious yeah. to know whether there's any actual facts to back up those observations <laughs> i don't know i don't know but it is interesting so you know we've known each other for a while but rather than me telling folks about you I mean, it's been, gosh, least 12 years, but tell us a little bit about your background. You know, for example, like when I first met you, you had written a book called Pojo in Action. So, and that was a very popular like book for the Java community. So where do you come from? Where's your, you know, technology skills and experience come from? Yeah. Well, I've been developing software for quite a while. You know, actually, you know, I like to say my first paid job was back in 1982, which was the summer um, before I went off to college. Right. Yeah. What was funny, right? I think about it, like the machine I was using at, at my high school, it was a research machines 380Z that had 32K of 
that, that was K of memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and like a 100K floppy disk drive, right? Yep. You know, it's so primitive. And, you know, in comparison, right, like today you go on Amazon, you can buy a four terabyte hard drive for like a hundred bucks. It's no big deal, right? Yeah. And then sort of just various kinds of software over the years. I mean, one of the, sort of the most interesting stuff I did very early on was building Lisp systems. So that was the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, those were, you know, sophisticated software with graphical development environments and all of that. <laughs> And those ran on machines with eight megabytes of memory. Yeah. Okay. You've been designing software for a long time. Yeah. And ultimately, I ended up in Java, right, in the late 90s, which I guess was 20, you know, yeah, or mid to late 90s, right? Because Java just turned 25. Wow. Which makes me feel old. <laughs> oh, I was around then too, and it just doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and then we met back at the first cloud camp. I remember that. And you were, you had just bought the cloud, the domain name cloudfoundry.com. Yeah. So, you know, that was a really interesting time. I still organize the Oakland Java users group that we haven't actually met in a while. An evangelist from Amazon, and this was in 2006, came and talked about, well, we thought they were going to come and talk about APIs for buying books because the topic was APIs, right? And instead, this guy shows up and talks about APIs for provisioning servers. And this notion that with like one API call, you could provision, was it up to 20 servers and pay 10 cents an hour, you know, totally blew my mind. You know, I'd never, that was just like totally radical idea. And so that was in October, 2006, I think. And then a few months later, I got access to, I think, like the beta program for EC2. And then I started playing around with it. And that ultimately led to me creating the original Cloud Foundry, you know, which was, that was like in 2008, I think. And that was a PaaS for deploying Java applications on EC2. So you upload your WAR file and then click, click, click. It will then provision a cluster of EC2 instances running Apache, Tomcat, and MySQL, and monitor and manage. And, and I think they also did auto scaling for you. And of course, this was back in the days where EC2 was completely bare bones. So it was sort of like, yeah, there was this cloud thing. And so I went to Cloud Camp. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, it was the Heroku existed then, and I remember that was, I think maybe, yeah, Google App Engine existed, but that was about it. There was very little as far as software that would do anything like that that I knew of. So, yeah, you were one of the very first, you know, I ended up creating a Cloud Foundry meetup group and all that kind of stuff. I think that was a little bit later, though, but yeah, and then you ended up in a kind of a circuitous route, ended up VMware. Uh, how'd that happen? Oh, yeah, so 2009... Spring Source company behind the Spring Framework acquired Cloud Foundry. Your company? Yeah, my company. So that was like May. And then a few months later, I think that was September, got acquired by VMware. And so I went from a tiny, tiny startup to a you know, smallish company. I forget what Spring Source was, 150 people, to VMware that had thousands and thousands of people. So it was kind of like, whoa. Things are changing. 
Yeah, and so that's where the name Cloud Foundry comes from. Um, ultimately, it got that the name got taken over by a different project, which and that project was the origins of today's Cloud Foundry. So my only contribution there was the actual name. Right. Well, I'm sure you provided some. You were part of that team, though, for a while. Weren't you like evangelizing it or doing something like that? Or were you not involved in that at all? Yeah, no, that was the strangest thing. So I didn't have anything to do with it. And I was doing other things at VMware. And then in 2012, I joined the evangelism group. And so spent basically a year and a half in total just traveling around the world talking about Cloud Foundry and actually <laughs> microservices as well. Right. Because there was such synergy between PaaS and microservices. And I actually gave my first talk on microservices, I think it was April 2012. Wow, okay. Um, even though it wasn't called that, didn't have a cool name yet. I, I kind of called it this modular polyglot architecture. But that's sort of not as slick as calling it microservices. <laughs> Right. And so that's really where I guess the topic of this podcast really comes in is, you know, microservices, you know, in my mind sort of came out of that, that platform as a service space really made it easy to deploy a service and then let other people, you know, deploy a service. And of course, you know, in the cloud camp ecosystem, you've got the Netflix folks running around talking about microservices. And at some point, yeah, you came to the Silicon Valley DevOps meetup group and gave a talk, which I kind of at the last second brought up my like handy cam or something and put it on my desk. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> no, it's like it. the most basic ad videoing job ever, right? But totally. It was last minute. It almost felt like a bootleg. <laughs> and then I posted that on YouTube and that thing went off the hook like tens of thousands, like 20, I don't even know what it's at now, 30,000 views or more. I don't know what it's at. It just kept going and going and going. So definitely was a topic that even back then was, you know, taking off. So let's get into this. I don't want to spend much time on what is a microservice. I'll just jump to the conclusion and say it's, it's not a small thing necessarily. It's in fact, most people don't build small microservices. It seems to be much more along the lines of like a an organization or a team or, you know, something that a team is working on or, you know. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, what's interesting is a couple of years ago, I gave a talk saying, and the title was, there's no such thing as a microservice. Right, right. And really what that's getting at is, you know, the, the microservice architecture is an architectural style for your application. And it structures it as a set of services. Or, I mean, and you could say it structures it as a set of microservices. But the key thing is that the application as a whole is made up of multiple services. Right. Yeah. And I remember the services architecture, not yeah. a service. You know, it's like, I think it's like quarks in nuclear physics, right? You can't just have one. <laughs> you actually need a collection of them for it to be a meaningful thing, right? And then the other yeah. problem with microservices is that the first thing you hear is micro, which makes you think that they should be tiny. And that just leads you down a very painful path if you take it literally. And um, a lot of people did, at least they would run into them. Oh yeah, they still do. It just sounds like such a 
like a management nightmare, you know, like all these changes always happening that you have to coordinate libraries, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it, like why microservices and basically it's a way of achieving the architectural qualities like deployability, testability, and modularity that you need on loose coupling that you need in order to deliver software rapidly, frequently, reliably, and sustainably, right? In other words, you want to build better software faster. And, you know, once you get to a certain level of complexity and you have multiple teams working on, on an application, you need a loosely coupled architecture that is highly testable and deployable. And so that's why you go down that path. So if you take that literally, the, all you need is one service per team, right? So if you've got five teams working on an application, well, you perhaps you can just get away with five services because that gives you the loose coupling that enables the teams to work independently. Right. And though interestingly, the pattern that you see quite often actually works out roughly as a service per developer. And I've seen that at multiple organizations. So yeah, so if you've got, I don't know, I'm just making up numbers here, but you've got you know five teams and the teams have eight developers on them, then you could very well end up with an architecture that has 40 services. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and probably you don't need that many, or, you know, because probably that you can have a much simpler, much more coarse-grained architecture and still be as you know, as productive. And then there's actually one very high profile company out there, which actually had roughly 10 services per developer. Whoa. I haven't met with them, so I can't, I don't know all of the motivations for it, but it was like, wow, that's a lot. That does you know, seem Just yeah. to get all that in your head, it seems like, you know, as a developer, it seems like the context switching would be sort of a hurdle. Yeah. I mean, like, especially when you think like, you know, like the whole, what's, what's the number of things that a developer or a human can keep in their sort of working memory? It's like five plus or minus two, right? Right. Yeah. You can't have that many pieces to reason about and then still be able to reason about them, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if somebody gives you a call-in number and then you've got to put in the password, the passcode, I know that if it's past about eight digits, I start having a hard time and I have to go back and forth and it's, you know, it's kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. Though I try and force myself to do that, to remember things, because I think it's just, it's just good practice, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So one of the things that I wanted to spend some time on was some of the best practices around developing microservices. And you know, you wrote a book on uh, microservices patterns, which is, to me, one of the most important things that once you get going, you start to pay attention to what's worked for others in the past. So what I was hoping that we could spend a little bit of time on is just talking about some of the different patterns that you find most interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly, at a high level, the first patterns that are most really essential are well, what architectural style should you have for your application, right? And, you know, the way I express it, you know, one option is the monolithic architecture, which has a bunch of pros and cons. 
Then the other option is the microservice architecture, which also has a bunch of pros and cons. And the key idea with a pattern, right, is that it's, you know, it's a solution to a problem that occurs in a particular context, and it all represents a particular set of trade-offs. So the concept of a pattern is completely or diametrically opposite the notion of a silver bullet, right? Which is sort of often how we talk about technology. This is awesome. That sucks kind of discussion, right? So the reason I'm into patterns and and created the pattern language was to really provide an objective way of talking about technology and making technical decisions. And my interest in patterns goes back to basically the mid 90s, like when the design patterns book came out. But yes, that's sort of the driving philosophy is you always have to evaluate the pros and cons and then pick the pattern that best fits your particular context. And so, you know, diving into the microservices high level pattern, you know, what are some examples of patterns that you might use? within a microservices architecture? Yeah. Well, if you think, right, so top-level decision is what architectural style should I have for my application, right? And so one obvious thing is the monolith because sometimes that's a good choice, right? Mm -hmm. Then if you pick the microservice architecture, you now have a whole bunch of, it's sort of like you've solved that problem, you've made a decision, but that's actually created various sub-problems for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like, that's the other aspect of patterns is, yeah, like patterns create sub-problems or issues that you then have to use other patterns to resolve. And this actually ends up sort of being a recursive structure. So first question you have is like, yeah, we're going to use microservices. So, you know, key question is, what services should you then have? Right. So what's like the one that you see people using a lot, like maybe because it's just a common problem or because it's like a beginner pattern? You know, what should people first look at perhaps for a starting point? So yeah, there are a couple of decomposition patterns which one is decomposed by business capability component. And those, those patterns are roughly equivalent and which one you, you want to use depends on what you're coming at it from the business architecture that's about capability or whether you're coming at it from direct domain-driven which uses the subdomains. In both cases, your org, your service around business chunks of of business functionality. The challenge you have is there's a sort of mechanical process. If you follow, you will come up with a perfect architecture. I mean, you have to kind of rely on your best judgment as an architect to reasonable architecture. So those patterns are very generic. But then there are some other more specific patterns like one service Right, is push of having a core in dark as a and as a pattern, which is like having a architecture, which I think is is a very common mistake. And then another key idea is this notion of having a self-contained service, 
which is a service that can respond to a synchronous request, like a request, without invoking any other services, without waiting for a response to come any other services. Because if you path of having a synchronous call, end up with a basically any any is a point of failure. So those are some of the decomposition patterns. Right. And so there's, I mean, I, if you take a look at your website at microservices.io, you can see that there's a lot of patterns. And I wouldn't say it goes on infinitely, but there's a, you know, probably like, I don't know, what, like 30 of them <laughs> on your website or maybe more, I'm not sure. Different types. So there's another one. 40s, actually. In the 40s. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's quite a few. And, and so there's some database patterns. Tell us a little bit about those, like which ones, you know, our audience might be interested in, you know, folks interested in uh, Redis or, 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 you know, SQL databases. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So you come up, you decompose what would normally be a monolith into a set of services, right? You know, like, oh, we have an order management service and a customer management service. So that's good. Now, another key issue is, are sort of these distributed data patterns is that they are loosely coupled. And there's two different aspects to loose coupling. One is design time, which means if one service changes, you want to reduce the likelihood of it, of it requiring this to change in lockstep because that forces teams to coordinate work and which slows development down. And there's also runtime coupling, which is where if service A can't respond to a request without service B functioning, there you've, that you've reduced your availability. So you want to have this loosely coupled. One key way of achieving that is that each service basically has its own database, which is encapsulated behind the services API. Now the, it does turn out that in practice, you could have a shared database service. So you don't have to give you know, Larry Ellison buy an Oracle license from Larry for every service that you have. But the tables that a service owns are, in, are private to that service. So then that immediately creates issues around transaction management because if you have operations that span services, you basically need some kind of distributed transaction. And if you have queries that retrieve data from multiple services, then that you somehow have to have some distributed querying capability. But the traditional ways of doing both of those things, like two-phase commit and distributed queries that just do a join across a bunch of tables, can't work because that also violates the requirement of having loose coupling. So that's when you get into the distributed data management patterns like the Saga pattern, which is a way of maintaining data consistency across multiple services in a loosely coupled fashion. And then the querying patterns, API composition and CQRS, which implement queries in a somewhat loosely coupled fashion as well. And kind of underlying premise there is that even if you have multiple microservices using the same database, but with different tables, 
you don't want those developers to write a query that crosses over and uses a table that is managed by another team. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Because imagine that you know, your service accesses my services database schema directly. That means that I can't change that schema without going and talking to you, right? Right. Which, and if you're on another team, that just leads to slow decision-making, right? Like we have to schedule a meeting. We have to find a meeting room, which globally is a problem. Well, we're all virtual, so not so much anymore. <laughs> and so the decision-making takes orders of magnitude longer. And if, you know, this is a common problem in enterprises, it basically becomes impossible to change database schemas because it has such big impact on so many different applications. And so that's design time coupling. So the idea with, with the microservice architecture is, no, everything has to be accessed through an API, which encapsulates details like the database schema. So you're free to change those details, assuming that it doesn't break the API in a backwards compatible fashion. Right. And so you, you make the API available to others, they can use it, and then you can change things as needed behind the scenes, I guess. And you can also provide versioning of APIs, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can ensure that APIs are backwards compatible as much as possible. If you have to introduce a breaking change, then the service would support both versions of that API for some period of time until all of the clients have migrated over to the new version. Okay, so you got the CQRS and what was the other patterns you mentioned there for the database? So there were sagas that implements for maintaining transactional data consistency across multiple services. And then API composition for doing queries that retrieve data from multiple services. And then there's also CQRS, which is a, a more powerful way of implementing queries that span multiple services. And does GraphQL come into play at all in here? Do you ever run into that? Yeah, that's super interesting. So if you look at the API composition pattern, that's a really simple pattern. Like, you know, so imagine that you're implementing a query that needs to retrieve data from the order service and the customer service. The implementation of that query would simply get what it needs from the order service by issuing a query, you know, like a HTTP get against the order service API. And then it retrieves the data that it needs from the customer service via another API call, combines the results together. So one way of doing that is you write a bunch of code that literally does those two things. Now, if you look at API composition, that's sort of that pattern on, well, steroids, positive sense, where, right, it's basically a dynamic, it's almost like declarative form of API composition. So most definitely on the edge of your system when you're exposing a public API to the outside and you wanna provide flexible data querying, GraphQL is quite, is a reasonable you know, candidate to consider that. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, it gives the developers some decision-making capability as to which data is being retrieved from which API. Is that correct? Yeah. 
I mean, basically, I mean, it's funny because it's called GraphQL, but basically what you're doing is defining an object model. I mean, it's graph-like because you have nodes and edges, but in reality, those the nodes are classes which have attributes, and then they can have relationships with other classes, right? Those are the edges. And then a client issues a query, and it would say, well, I want all of the orders that match this criteria and also please give me the name of the customer so that's traversing a relationship and retrieving the specific attributes of the customer that the client needs so it's sort of doing a kind of a join with a projection of, of some kind so the client issues that query and then on the back end you map that schema to api calls I mean, you have what you write, what are known as resolver functions that says, oh, you're asking for orders. Well, that means doing a query to the a get to slash orders to the order service, for instance. And then it's like, oh, you want to traverse and retrieve the orders customer. So that means doing a get on slash customers slash orders, right? So yeah. you, you have this mapping between the schema and the services that provide the data. You know, I can see how that can give more flexibility to the developer, but I also feel like, is that potentially creating an extra layer of rigidity that, you know, was now built in, or is it actually loosening things up a bit? Well, if you were to compare it with a REST API, where you've got a fixed set of resources, and maybe there's some hacks to, like, get a resource like an order and then specify what related resources you want to retrieve, right? The rest way of doing things is pretty rigid. Whereas GraphQL gives you a lot of flexibility to basically dynamically join sort of these objects together and then also do projections to retrieve the specific set of attributes of each object that you need as opposed to just retrieving, returning the whole object. So it actually gives you a lot of flexibility. Oh, that's good. I think yeah. that... Shameless plug, by the way, in, in chapter eight of, I think it is, of my book where I talk about API gateway, the API gateway pattern, I, I have a whole section on GraphQL. Okay, there you go. Now, just yet another reason to buy microservices patterns. <laughs> Well, okay, so you've got your book that you've written. We talked about the online course that you've created, which you, people can go to and register. Oh, did we? Oh, you mentioned it briefly, yeah. Yeah, mentioned it. You can go to, uh, again, go to microservices.io or go and look in the show notes and there's a link. And then make sure to look on the right-hand side, at least today, you can click on the boot camp there, the virtual boot camp. And in that course, you're talking about a lot of these distributed database patterns. And so if you want more on that, go check out the course. But then you've also got this company that you've started a couple of few years ago called Eventuate. And as I recall, you told me it's a distributed data management platform for microservices. But what, what does that actually mean? Is it a microservices framework or like, how would you describe it? Yeah. So basically... There's actually, it's comprised of a couple of different parts. So it's got two different programming models. So there's two different frameworks there. Plus there's some service that runs separately from your application. So to get, so it's like 
So if you're using it, you're running a, you're using a framework in your microservices plus running this service separately from your actual application code. And basically the whole purpose of Eventuate is to solve or tackle the distributed data management challenges that you're faced when using microservices. And so it basically implements these patterns or provides you some of these patterns directly or provides the building blocks that make you, that enable you to easily use these patterns. So like out of the box, if you want to do sagas, right? You know, which is an a, sort of asynchronous messaging driven way of doing transactions that span multiple services, Eventuate has an implementation for that. Or if you want to use the CQRS pattern, which is where you use events to maintain an easily queried replica of the data, Eventuate makes it easy to publish events transactionally when the source of truth data changes and also consume those events so you can update the replica database. Is that for so that different teams can subscribe to changes from other teams' databases? Or is that just within your own team's service or microservice? Oh, yeah. I mean, so one common pattern, which is sort of a, just a generic pattern, is when a service changes, when a service updates its data, like the order service creates an order, or the customer service creates a customer, it's super useful if that service publishes an event announcing that it's done that. And that event publishing mechanism actually is the foundation for some of the distributed data management patterns like the Saga pattern and like the CQRS pattern as well as just enabling more generic things like, oh, we're going to send an email because an order has been accepted, has been created, right? So by publishing events to a message broker can just drive a whole bunch of activities sort of within your services, within inside your organization more generally, or possibly to integrate with other applications outside of your organization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, otherwise you're polling and doing all sorts of, you know, time. Yeah. Resource. Another great example, right, is a lot of sort of um, public APIs let you register a webhook, right? So you get an HTTP-based callback when something notable happens inside some application. You know, classic example is like with GitHub, right? You know, you get notified when someone uh, does a push or something. So yes, subscriber could actually trigger a webhook to notify a you know, some random application that's thing of it. Yeah. So you know, one of the things of Eventuate is that it makes it very straightforward to implement these event-driven applications. So that could then ultimately that would event to be published, which could then invoke some webhook. So those are the kinds of architectures that eventuate makes it easy to implement. And as we mentioned before, I think, you know, that's maybe where you might see some Redis, right? Because it can be the back end for that kind of hook. Oh, yeah. Well, there's sort of a couple of different areas where Redis fits into a microservice architecture quite nicely. 
So one is you need a messaging infrastructure. And one option there is to use Redis streams, right? Super lightweight, low latency, reliable messaging, you know, piece of messaging infrastructure. And it so happens that one of the message brokers that eventuate supports is actually Redis. So you can just drop it in and start using it. And then also the other role for Redis is actually, that was really quite nice is to implement one of these CQRS views. So the whole point of the goal is to efficiently implement one or more queries. So you pick a database, you pick a, and you design a schema specifically for those queries. And so you can take advantage of all the sort of the cool sort of data representations that Redis offers to implement a very high performance um, CQRS view. Yeah, nice. So what about like a cache? Maybe that's just super straightforward in this scenario, just like it is in a monolith. But, you know, does a cache just sit in front of the API just like any other cache would? Yeah. I mean, services can have a cache like sitting, as you say, like in front of their APIs or a service could cache data that it retrieves from from other services. But it's sort of those use cases are fairly straightforward and not too different from with a monolith. And of course, you know, a little plug for Redis modules. Redis now not only provides the 10 different data structures, including streams, but then there's also the ability to have a graph or a search or JSON or time series databases as well. You just got to get the right module and then you've got that capability as well. I don't want to go off on that too much. And in fact, I know that we have to be careful of time here. So I want to move on to, well, give you a chance to, for example, to say, you know, what's new with Eventuate? Is there anything that's happened in the last, uh, I don't know, six months or so since we last talked about this? Yeah. One thing I'm super excited about was, you know, in the beginning, Eventuate was a framework for Spring Boot applications. So heavily, you know, it was in the JVM world and then you just dropped into Spring Boot. But one change we made recently was to add support from Micronaut, you know, which is another popular Java framework. And what's particularly exciting about that is that it required a major refactoring of Eventuate to separate the sort of framework-specific stuff from the framework-independent stuff. So that opens up the possibility of supporting other Java frameworks as well. And indeed, actually, you, if you wanted to, you could just use Eventuate in a vanilla Java application. You know, like, for instance, the main use for using Spring is to wire together all of the components with dependency injection. While in a vanilla Java application, you could just simply write a bunch of constructor calls to instantiate things, right? So that's pretty awesome. And then a, an Eventuate customer actually contributed a .NET port, which is super exciting. So you, you can write, you can have your .NET services publishing events, which are then consumed by your Java services or vice versa. So not only are we you know, multi-framework, but it's also multi-language now. And there's actually a Node.js version under development as well. So you 
can have your Node.js services publishing events that get consumed by your Java or .NET services. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, well, you know, the code in many applications, just like when you deploy into the cloud, sure, there's a lot of effort that goes into writing the code and it's a lot of creativity and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, once you deploy it, it's usually just stateless. It's, you know, dealing with the data, it seems like the most complicated part. And, you know, once you've built your app and I'm glad to see that this framework is getting traction beyond, uh, you know, the initial target, which is the spring folks. Yeah. I know. I know we're going to run out of time here. So I got two more questions for you and then we can uh, wrap things up. Let's see. The first one is, so for those folks who are, you know, looking at a sort of a summary here, like what are some of the keys to microservices that you suggest developers focus on when they're first getting going? Well, I think the main thing to keep in mind, right, is the primary goal of the microservice architecture is to enable teams to be productive. And, you know, given that, you should strive for a relatively coarse-grained architecture, or to be more specific, one service per team, unless there is a demonstrable you know, tangible reason for actually having a finer grained architecture. You know, for instance, if a team owned a service and that service got too large, that it took too long for the automated test to run, then that would be an argument for splitting that service into smaller services, which can be developed and tested independently. But you want to have a good reason for doing that rather than just going, yeah, it's microservices, so we'll just have lots of them because, you know, that's very much an anti-pattern. And really, you know, identifying the services, their APIs and how they interact, you know, they need to be loosely coupled, right? Because that's the whole point. That's the most important decision that you will make. And... Yeah, on the one hand, you know, like technology decisions like, oh, we're going to use Kubernetes or we're going to use REST versus gRPC are important to varying degrees compared with actually defining your services, their APIs and their interactions. Those are just technical details. You know, you're not going to, you know, I'm going to make a generalization here, right? You can... If you get your service boundaries wrong, you could pretty much fail. And you see examples of this where people go, yeah, we did microservices, they sucked. So we went back to a monolith. But the reason they sucked is because you got your service boundaries wrong. At least there's one very prominent example that I read about. They forgot that services should be loosely coupled. So that you will fail because you get your service boundaries correctly, but you won't you know, if you choose Kubernetes instead of AWS ECS or the other way around, you're most likely not going to fail because of that decision. That's, it's important to have good infrastructure, but it's not going to determine your, you know, one versus one technology versus the other is not going to impact you that much. Got it. Good, good. Thanks. And so to wrap things up here, what one last piece of advice would you give someone considering microservices? Well, important to remember that microservices are not a silver bullet, right? So this notion that, oh, microservices are new, we should always use them, is not correct, right? 
conversely, monoliths work just fine. They're the future and you should not do microservices. That's not correct either, right? I mean, both of those, you know, monolithic architecture, microservice architecture, they're patterns and each one has pros and cons. And which architecture is best for your application, you know, depends on your specific situation you know, the size of your application and sort of the stability of the various parts of it and, you know, a whole host of factors. And so your job as an architect is to not just blindly pick one architecture, but to carefully decide which one, you know, is best for my given application at this point in time. Well, good. That was very practical sage advice for our audience really appreciate that and you know i I was wondering if at any point in time we might get a little snarky or something because you know you and i have been on panels before where we (laughs) got to these laughing fits that i'm sure were a lot of fun for us i'm not sure the audience really got anything out of it (laughs) but on that note this has been a lot of fun and i've really enjoyed you know always learn something from you chris so thank you for joining us and for those of you who are listening here Chris did give his workshop again for the second year at Redis Conf, Distributed Data Patterns for Microservices, which is probably sold out now. We had a set number of seats for attendees to take, but you can now go to his website at microservices.io and you can take that course or one similar to it just by signing up on his website. Also take a look in the show notes where you can see some links that were provided about, you know, from this podcast. And you can also follow Chris, I didn't mention this earlier, online on Twitter at C. Richardson on Twitter. So, hey, Chris, thanks again for joining me. Oh, I really enjoyed it. It's always good to talk to you, Dave. All right, we'll have to do this again. So, again, I'm Dave Nielsen, Head of Community and Ecosystem Programs at Redis Labs, and this is the Redis Stars podcast where we talk with community members about what's new and what they're doing with Redis. We'll see you online. <laughs>